Yeshua Stanford. It is Tuesday, the 25th of July, 2017. Welcome to the Henry George Program. This is Mark Molino, and I'm joined by co-host Jacob Swartz-Lucas. This is a show dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis, economic volatility, inequality, and environmental degradation here in the San Francisco Bay Area and beyond. We compare and contrast the ideas of the 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. Also addressed are issues ranging from markets, artificial intelligence, automation, and universal basic income to city planning and the land value tax, a concept popularized by George. Today on the show, Alvin Roth, right here at Stanford. Alvin Roth is a Craig and Susan McCaw Professor of Economics here at Stanford and the Gunn Professor of Economics and Business Administration Emeritus at Harvard University. He is also the 2017 president of the American Economics Association. In 2012, he won the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences jointly with Lloyd Shapley for the theory of stable allocations and the practice of market design. Roth is an expert in the fields of game theory, market design, and experimental economics. In particular, he helped redesign mechanisms for selecting medical residents, New York City, and Boston public school students, and allowing for life-saving kidney exchanges. He's written a book about his life in designing better markets and lessons in designing and understanding markets for the rest of us. It's called Who Gets What and Why. It's currently out in paperback. Welcome to the Henry George Program, Professor Roth. Thank you. So, for someone who's unfamiliar with the importance of, of matching markets as compared to, you know, kind of classic ideas of commodity markets, you know, what, what is the general idea and why should people, you know, care about this difference? Well, in commodity markets... You don't have to care who you're dealing with. That's the virtue of, of reducing things to commodities like financial commodities or uh, commodities like uh, wheat, which God made wheat, but, but the Chicago Board of Trade made number two hard red winter wheat. And you can buy 5,000 bushels of that without looking at it because it's the same in every in every bundle. But many markets aren't commodity markets, and, and you care who you're dealing with, and you can't um, you can't just get what you want merely because you can afford it. Often you have to be chosen. You can't just choose what you want. So think about getting admitted. Think about coming to study at Stanford University. Not everyone who can afford the tuition is free to come and study here. You have to be admitted. And the same thing is true of, of labor markets. You can't just go work for Facebook. You have to get hired. And Facebook can't just hire who they want. They have to compete with, with Google and with with. Uh, teach for America. So lots of markets are matching markets where there's something a little bit like courtship and marriage involved. You have to investigate each other in ways that don't just involve prices. And one measure of success in a matching market is the idea that if a matching market is going to you know, work and, and be stable, and uh, it, you need to have the idea of, of, of stable matches and uh, non-blocking matches. I, I guess for, for an audience unfamiliar with that, how would you, yeah, how, why, why is that important for, you know, for, for the success of a market? Well, that, that's important for some markets more than for others. Uh, the place in my work where, where that was really important was in helping to redesign the market by which doctors get their first jobs in the United States. So there's a, a big labor clearinghouse for doctors called the National Resident Matching Program. And it pretty much uh, serves most of the market for, for first jobs for, for physicians in the United States as, who, are, who become residents at hospitals and, uh, and, and as new employees get supervised 
medical training while they while they work for the hospital. Um, and and this was set up and, and still largely persists as a as a voluntary program. Um, the the NRMP actually can't enforce that people will sign the contract that it makes matches for. So if if it were uh, if a clearinghouse weren't producing stable matchings. What would happen is you would you would get a, a notice that said, here's the hospital you were matched to, and, and maybe you'd be matched to your third-choice hospital. But if you got on the phone and called your second or your first choice, you might find that just as you would prefer to work for them, they would prefer to hire you, and then maybe you would go there instead, and the, the, the centralized clearinghouse wouldn't, wouldn't be doing its job. So a stable matching has the property that when you call up employers who you would rather work for, you find that they wouldn't rather hire you. And so the best you can do is to to go along with the match that was created. So a stable match has the property that there aren't a doctor and a hospital not matched to each other who would both prefer to be matched to each other. And to put it another way, it means you get the best job that's willing to hire you. You, you get your most preferred job among those that that likes you well enough to hire you instead of someone else. Yeah, it's it's such a cool way to look at, you know, the design of a system is if you design it the right way and prove it in the right way, people can trust that it will do better than they can possibly do on their own, which is, you know, such a cool way for people to I guess view a, a system like that. Well, so so one thing that marketplaces have to do is is feel like safe places to do your transactions and create a thick market that a lot of people want to transact in. And we see that not just in labor clearinghouses like like the one for doctors you see that a little bit in in markets like uber and airbnb you know you have to stability in in the same mathematical sense isn't isn't the same issue there but but the issue of trustworthiness you know if you are going to rent uh, an airbnb place to stay you have to trust that when you arrive it's going to look sort of like the picture that you saw on the site and the the host has to trust that that you're a capable guest you know how to be a guest and you won't trash the place um and similarly for drivers you know uber drivers when you're matching travelers to to drivers they have to feel reasonably confident that when they arrive at the pickup place you'll be there and you have to be pretty confident that that you can get a good safe ride from them so so marketplaces in general have to feel safe have to be safe and have to promote thickness from a consumer end, do you think a, a consumer really should think of the fact that it, you know, why should they trust it? You know, and it, its mathematics proves that it, it does a good job. Do you think the average consumer should really, uh, I guess, n- you know, care or know about the mathematics that lie behind the markets they deal with every day? No, not at all. You should, uh, you should know from the experience of your friends and from your experience that the market works. But one of the things that makes it work is that, um, is that. You don't feel that you feel like carrying through with the transactions that the market suggests to you. If uh, if every time you tried to get an Uber, the driver, or if many times when you tried to get an Uber, the driver canceled or the passenger canceled, then pretty soon that would be a much less reliable marketplace. Similarly for hotels or Airbnb or for uh, buying things on on eBay, you know, if 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 uh, you couldn't trust that the transaction would go through in an orderly way, it wouldn't be a good place to buy things. So, so in your career, you you've you know put yourself in the role of helping design and redesign markets to make the world uh, you know better and, and function better. How did how did these markets find you, or how did you find these markets to to help these work better? 
Well, so so I, I, I got matched with different markets differently. Um, for the medical match, I, I read about it. The medical match existed before I got involved in it. Uh, and it started to have some problems. And I read about them and studied them and wrote papers about them. And when it reached a crisis, they, they gave me a call, actually, because I was someone who had been studying the market. Um, other markets, you know, so school choice. Actually, school choice was, was sort of similar. Uh, New York City was having trouble in its in its high school placement process. And I got a call from them. You know, my phone rang one day. And, uh, and they had made the connection that school choice was a little bit like the medical match, and they knew about my involvement in that. Um, but other markets like kidney exchange, you know, my colleagues and I wrote a paper on kidney exchange, and then we sent it to all the kidney surgeons we could locate, uh, all the transplant surgeons, and uh, only one of them answered us, and that was Frank Delmonico, and we helped him start the New England program for kidney exchange. So, you, you know, sometimes you need to find a champion, but, but sometimes they find you and sometimes you find them. Yeah, uh, and I guess when you're looking at when a market is is not working currently, and you could say, oh, the market has failed, but you, you've you've looked at a lot of different ways to classify failures, which you know seem to be very descriptive and very and and have helped look at different ways to to uh, solve it. In in uh, in each of these, you know, I, I guess if you know in these ways of looking at failure, uh, one thing you talk about is you know unraveled markets and uh, congested markets. Uh, when you look at this vocabulary of looking at market failures, how can this really help to look at ways to fix markets? Well, so so one way to think about what I talk about when I say market failure is marketplace failure. Right? There are there's a long tradition in economics of talking about market failure, where what we mean is some set of transactions that markets are simply not equipped to solve. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, you know, there was there, there was it was there was a lot of congestion in the taxi market, and Uber and Lyft came along and had a better way of calling taxis using the new smartphone app technology, and so so they they were fixing. There, there's no reason there shouldn't be a market for taxis. Uh, there was a market; it just wasn't working very well. And now technology is being brought to bear, along with a lot of organizational changes, to to make it work better. Um, so. So a lot of what I talk about are are marketplace failures and and the the sort of checklist that I put together to talk about is the first thing your marketplace has to do is it has to make the market think it has to bring a lot of people together to transact with each other and one way that that markets can lose their thickness is if transactions start to take place elsewhere in lots of different places or lots of different times that's what unraveling is about. In a lot of labor markets, um, people get hired long before their job is going to start. You know, think about labor markets that that in which the job doesn't start until you graduate from some school like law school or medical school. Um, right now, lawyers, if you know someone who's graduating from law school this coming year in June, if they're going to be a clerk for a uh, appeals court judge, or if they're going to be an associate at a big law firm, they already know that today, before the beginning of their last year of law school. Uh, and they may have already known it for a year. And that means that those jobs are being contracted very early. And that tends to mean that the people who are getting those very early offers aren't getting many of them, because when you're talking about a very early market, different judges, different law firms make offers at different times. So 
Uh, that's an unraveled market, and it might or might not be something that, that the participants would like to fix. That's what happened in medicine that, that caused them to have the, the somewhat unusual centralized clearinghouses. It used to be that doctors were also being hired two years in advance of graduation, and that caused lots of inefficiencies. It's hard to tell what kind of doctor you want to be when you've only been through the first year of medical school. It's hard to tell which doctors you want to hire when they've only been through the first year of medical school. So, um, so I think the medical market works today much better than it did when it was very unraveled. And parts of the, the law market are still quite unraveled. So I, I guess if you're looking at the best match, you'd want everyone to have all the information they want, which is, you know, at the end of your, at the end of your school, you you know exactly what you want out of the market and what you know, and or the the employers and what they want out of you. But yeah, I guess when you're talking about the unraveled market, you you have a lot of questions that you are just leaving unanswered in in this case. Well, there's there's a balance. I mean, there's I think you'd like lots of information. You'd like to know what you're going to do. On the other hand, you might also like to be able to plan. You wouldn't want to – it might be too late if you were waiting till the day after you graduated from law school to find out where you were going to work uh, in a month, right? Because you need time to make plans. If you've got a, a, a spouse, you have to look for two jobs. So so there's some kind of balance. It's not, it's not clear when's the right time to, to run the market for new lawyers, but – it's pretty clear that that it it might be more efficient to to run it pretty late when lawyers know what kind of law they're going to do and law firms know what kind of lawyer you're going to be, and uh, and all at the same time so you can contemplate multiple offers. You can look at lots of potential lawyers at the same time and figure out who you want to hire. You can look at lots of law firms and figure out where you want to work. So so medicine solved that problem. Law is is sort of limping along. Uh, in a in a much thinner market spread out over time, not that there there seems to be a you know a universal desire among lawyers to change that. So so my guess is they'll they'll keep limping along for a while. The judges periodically try to organize their market, and they've tried about a dozen times in the last thirty years, um, but not in not in very effective ways. That's why they have to try so often. So you'd say then that the point is to make the market thicker and to do it at the right point in time. How do you go about uh, determining that or letting that happen organically? Uh, take the take the context of um, people that are training to become lawyers to be starting to assess this decision at the right time. Um, what are the factors you need to weigh and, and how do you set this uh, well, so, so the judges the periodically try to move the hiring of clerks into the third year of law school, the last year of law school. And they've had a bunch of plans that they've put forward that say you shouldn't make offers before Labor Day of the third year, something like that. You know, so, so they have some idea when would be a good time to hire. And typically they – I mean they've done this a number of times now. And typically in the year after they try to make the rules, it has a substantial effect and there's a lot of late hiring – you know, which is to say in the third year. But then some judges find that if you just started hiring, you know, the day before Labor Day, you could make an exploding offer and maybe get someone to say yes who wouldn't have said yes if you waited until they had other offers. So so the, the law market has, I think, been plagued more or less by, um, by exploding offers, by people saying, you know, here's an offer that you could have today, but you have to let me know right now over the phone, not 
call up some other judge and see if he'll hire you. So what happened the last time they tried to fix this is for, for a number of years, it, it, um, the hiring mostly went on in the third year for, for half a dozen or more years. Uh, with each year a growing number of judges cheating just a little and going a little earlier. And um, one of the and, and law schools had tried to cooperate in the late hiring. So Stanford had Stanford Law School had a, uh, a guidance to law professors that said, you know, we're really trying to cooperate with the judges in moving the hiring late. So you shouldn't write letters of reference way early. You should wait until the appropriate time. But what would happen when judges were cheating is, you know, I'm a judge and you're a Stanford law professor. And I say, I call you up and I say, I'm hiring early this year. Do you have any good students for me? And if you say, you know, I'm really not allowed to talk to you about them until after Labor Day, then I'd say to you, oh, that's that's really too bad for your students because I'm, you know, I'm hiring now. And it's it, it turns out it's a great job for a new lawyer to have a clerkship with an appellate judge. So so by sticking to the rule, you would be harming your students. So it was very tempting to say, well, actually, I've got a great student who you'd love. And, and that allowed judges to hire earlier. So eventually Stanford, the, the dean of the Stanford Law School, wrote a memo saying, you know, other law schools have been breaking the rules and we're going to not enforce them anymore either. And the last circuit court of appeals was the D.C. circuit. They wrote a memo saying, you know, the other circuit courts have been breaking the rules and now we're not going to follow them either. And then that that just broke everything open. And I think the next year, this just happened a couple of years ago, the next year hiring moved from the third year into the second year. And I think now it's it's in the summer after the first year of law school is when appellate court judges are hiring their clerks. So after a while, they'll notice that it's hard to hire good clerks after one year in law school, and they'll try to move it back again if history has any guide. Again, they've, they've done this many times in the last 30 years. Who should determine what is an optimal time to to hire it should, should it be the the judges should it be the professors should it be the students if i'm a student i might love the idea that i have a job offer my first year in uh law school so that well oh, at least i've got that one in the bag and if a better one comes along later absolutely. on then i could take that what's so wrong with that yeah no no i think i think that's right these are great jobs so if you get a job the summer after your first year in law school you've won the lottery you know that you're going to have a fine legal career you've been uh, you know you're, you've been anointed so um, so that's good. On the other hand, if you are a star law student, law student, and I call you up um, in the summer after your first year of law school, and I say, "This is Judge Al. How would you like to clerk for me?" Um, what you'd really like to do is be able to say, "Can I think about this a little bit? Can I talk to my spouse? Can I um, talk to some other judges who 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 I also admire?" And the answer to all those things tends to be no. You know, in other words, if you want to clerk for me, you have to say yes now when I made you the offer. And so so on the one hand, you're winning the lottery, but maybe I'm your fifth choice judge. You know, I'm a pretty good judge. It'll be it'll be a great job for you to have. But you're such a promising law student that you might be able to get a job with with a better judge in a better circuit. And and the market, the way the market is working now prevents you from doing that. Or to do it, you have to take the big risk of saying to me, no, thank you, judge. You know, I I can't do that. So uh, that's a big risk because because you don't know what you're going to get if you say no. So so not you know, if if I'm a fancy enough judge, I can grab you before an even fancier judge grabs you. 
And that's what causes the market to unravel and go earlier and earlier. In other words, the reason I'm calling you this year in June is last year I called in July, and, and I, I think that my competitors are going to call in early July this year, so I'm calling in June. Um, so, so, it, so it's a big win to, to get a clerkship, but the people who get clerkships might have been able to get better clerkships. So often it's, it's no one is completely happy with the market. The answer to your question of who decides, it, it, you know, it should be the participants in the market who decide. There seems to be some consensus, because they keep trying to do it, that early in the third year of law school wouldn't be a bad time to hire clerks. Um, but they haven't yet developed rules that – rules for the market. That's what market design is about – that allow them to pick a time and stick to it. Is it a particular challenge for you know designing the right rules for a market for law students insofar as these are you know people who deal with rules and that's their it is a it is a particular challenge. Judges seem to be a law unto themselves, and it's very hard to make rules that judges feel like they should abide by it turns out so um it, you know in the context of uh, organ donations, this has perhaps affects that uh, most people that don't know much about um, the way uh, young lawyers are hired would find immediately relevant, right? Uh, your work has actually saved people's lives. Uh, that's, you know, that's amazing. How, how can um, what you just said with respect to uh, lawyers getting matched uh, at the right time with firms, how does that apply to uh, improving these other sorts of markets that have very real tangible effects and improvements okay. in people's lives. Okay. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit about kidneys, which I guess is, uh, is what you're talking about. Um, so kidney failure is a terrible disease and lots of people have it and it's very expensive. Um, one thing you can do if you have kidney failure is get renal replacement therapy in the form of dialysis, which is, not a cure by any means. It's it's difficult to have dialysis. It, it pretty soon stops you from working, um, and you don't live very long on dialysis. I think the average time on dialysis in the United States is five years. Although you can meet people who have survived on dialysis for a long time. But what you'd really like if you if your kidneys fail is a transplant, and we get a lot of transplants from dead people, from deceased donors. So if you have a California driver's license, you had an opportunity to, when you got the license, to, to register as a deceased donor. Um, and if so, there'll be a little red heart, I think, on your on your driver's license. So that's a good thing to do. Um, if you didn't register when you were in the driver's license, you can go to donatelife.gov.org um, and, uh, and register. You can put your name on the registry on the internet. But it's actually a little bit hard to die in a way that makes your organs transplantable, useful for someone else. Basically, you have to die on a, on a ventilator. So you have to be in a hospital and then typically suffer brain death while your organs are still being supplied with oxygen. Uh, and those are the people who can be deceased donors. And we only have about 12 or 13,000 um, kidney transplants from deceased donors each year, and we have 100,000 people waiting for them and, and many more people than that on dialysis. So, uh, so there aren't enough deceased donors, but kidneys are a little bit special because healthy people have two kidneys and can remain healthy with one. So, so 
if someone you loved was dying of kidney failure, you might be able to save their life. If you're healthy enough to give a kidney, you might be able to save their life by, by giving them a kidney. Um, and we have about 6,000 living donor transplants each year in the United States. So, so again, the total of about 17 or 18,000 transplants a year is well short of what we need, but, but the living donors save a lot of lives. So the question is how to get more living donations. And one reason it's hard to be a living donor, it's hard to save people with living donation, is you might be healthy enough to give someone you love a kidney, but they might not be able to take your kidney because kidneys have to be well-matched to the recipient by blood type and by tissue type. There's a lot of things that go on before, before a person can take your kidney, even if you're healthy enough to give one. So what was often happening is some, you, you know, you would like to give a kidney to someone you love, but you can't give them a kidney. Not because you're not healthy enough to give a kidney, but because you can't give it to the person you love. And it could be that someone else is in the same situation. Maybe I'm in the same situation. I'd like to give a kidney to someone, but I can't give it to the person I love. And that's where economists and market design comes in, because we can start to arrange exchanges. Maybe, maybe my kidney is compatible with your patient and your kidney is compatible with my patient. And if so, we could save two lives. We could, we could get two transplants that wouldn't otherwise happen. Uh, and so right now in the United States, kidney exchange, that kind of simple exchange and more complicated exchanges uh, have become a standard form of transplantation. Uh, we do about 10% of American living donor transplants through exchange. So it's still not as big as it could be by any means. But, uh, but thousands of people have gotten transplanted through, through kidney exchange. So, so that's a market where you have to make it thick. You have to build a database of patient donor pairs so we can figure out who you could give your kidney to and who I could give my kidney to and whether we can find exchanges. And one thing you talk about is, is giving kidneys. It's it's important to note that is the only way in 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 here that you can actually, you know, uh, there's no you know public uh, there's no clearinghouse for you know selling your kidneys to and, and back because that's something that just uh, we we don't have. And uh, well, like, well, well, let's be clear. We 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 have we now have clearinghouses for exchanging kidneys. But it's against the law to sell a kidney for transplant. It's against the law, not just in the United States, it's against the law just about everywhere in the world, with, with the single significant exception of the Islamic Republic of Iran, where they have a monetary market for kidneys. But while there are black markets around the world, it's, it's not legal anywhere else to pay someone to give you a kidney. Yeah, okay, well, but, but we do have these clearinghouses now, which are called kidney exchanges. Um, there's the Alliance for Paired Donation. There's... Uh, there's one called the National Kidney Registry, which is also a private organization. And then there's a, a federally sponsored, still small exchange run by the United Network for Organ Sharing. And there's lots of exchanges, maybe more than half of the exchanges that go on each year in the U.S. happen at big transplant centers without the aid of, of an inter-hospital network. Yeah, so I, I guess one way you, you were trying to get more kidneys in the market and without you know uh, ways of allocating more kidneys through... Uh, you know, payments, you can still allocate more kidneys when, you know, people are able to trade more. And, and because this makes people who couldn't trade to someone they know, they can indirectly trade and, and still get more kidneys in the system. Absolutely. You could still help save the life of someone you loved by giving a kidney so that they could get a kidney. 
So, so in Iran, where they do have an actual place to sell kidneys, how is this working for them? So it's a little complicated to know. Uh, Professor Mohammad Akbarpour here at Stanford at the Business School is looking into that. He's, he's an Iranian person and um, you know, can talk to them more effectively than, uh, than people who don't speak Farsi. Um, so we're going to learn more about that in the, in the, you know, in the coming months, I think, as, as his study progresses. Um, it's a little bit controversial, even in Iran. There's, um, um, I think the biggest transplant center in Iran is in Shiraz, and they're actually not so wild about, about having their patients purchase a kidney. They make people wait uh, to see if they can get a deceased kidney before they want to go ahead and look at a, a purchase kidney. And I don't know what effect that has because, of course, if you – I mean, I say, of course, I don't really know much about the Iranian market. But, but if you were a patient of, in Shiraz, I don't think there's anything stopping you from going to Tehran and getting a, a transplant there that you purchase. So, so we'll uh, – I mean, I'm looking forward to learning more about that market, but I don't know very much about it yet. So one, one thing you've uh, you've mentioned is that, uh, you know, when you talk about selling, it, it not necessarily is a marketplace where it's just, you know, uh, money in return. I, I believe in Iran, they actually get a deferment from military service, which is an interesting way to kind of make people feel they're, they're doing their duty as, as giving a kidney. Right. So I'm, I'm not sure. I think they may have that also. I agree. I've heard that, but uh, but they do have money in Iran. I mean, the, Iran is the only place where it's explicitly legal to pay for a kidney for transplant. Uh, and again, there are black markets elsewhere. Kidneys are certainly bought and sold for transplant, but but not legally. What do you think the best way to, to do it would be if if you had the opportunity to, you know, design everything from the ground up? I could see some free market libertarian type saying. You should have a market for for kidneys. Now that is a very scary thought to me. I I, I wonder, you know, because it, it's basically saying that maybe some people who have more money have more of a right uh, to live than others. Uh, w what do you think would yield the best outcome for for the most people? Or well, I, I, I rarely find myself thinking. thinking I I rarely find myself thinking about what I would do if I could start from scratch because you can't start from scratch. Uh, but they, but you're certainly correct. There are many people who think we should um, change the law and allow the sale of kidneys. And some of them, as you say, would, would want a laissez-faire market where, where rich people could buy kidneys from poor people and maybe no one else could. But when you think about market design, that's not the only way to create a market in which you could buy kidneys. If you decided you were willing to pay to get more kidneys, you know, if you were willing to incentivize people to donate kidneys, you could, for instance, change the law so that only the federal government could buy kidneys, and then they could allocate them the way we currently allocate deceased kidneys, for example. So, so it could be that um, that it wouldn't be just rich people getting kidneys, uh, you know, that that poor people would continue to get them too. Which, incidentally, is quite important because kidney disease, like some other diseases, falls disproportionately on the poor. Right. I mean, anyone could get kidney disease, but but poor people get it at higher rates than than richer people do. So you, you certainly wouldn't want us uh, to change the allocation of kidneys so that poor people couldn't get them. It would sort of defeat the purpose. Um, but some years ago, I wrote a, a, a paper called Repugnance as a Constraint on Markets. 
The thing about being a practical market designer is you, you try to make things better by doing things that you can do. And so I haven't been a, a campaigner to, to change the law to allow uh, kidneys to be bought and sold. On the other hand, we don't do as good a job as we should in making sure that it's not costly for you to give someone a kidney. And the law does allow us to, to repay expenses, but we don't do a good job of doing that. So, for example, if someone wanted to give me a kidney, it would, it would cost them some money. I live in California, so if, if the person who loved me enough to give me a kidney lived in New York where I grew up, they'd have to fly out here. They'd have to get a hotel for a couple of days before their donor surgery, uh, probably for a couple of days afterward to you, know, you get released from the hospital, but you don't want to fly home before having had some checkups. Uh, they might miss some work. So they could easily have a couple thousand dollars of out-of-pocket costs to give me a kidney. And right now, we are not at all very good at, at um, getting that money back to them. For instance, my health insurance wouldn't pay for it. Uh, I'm on the board of a federally funded organization called NALDAC, National Living Donor Assistance Center. And it's an organization that has quite a small budget, about a $3.5 million a year budget, to help certifiably poor people with limited uh, assistance, mostly travel assistance, uh, to facilitate donation. And the restrictions under which they operate are so severe that they that in most years they can't spend their whole budget. They only have this $3.5 million budget. This is in a market where we spend about $50 billion a year taking care of people with, with kidney failure, with end-stage renal disease. So this is a tiny, tiny amount of money. And normally they can only spend you know, a little more than $2 million. They have a million dollars left over. So, so we need to relax those restrictions, make it easier to, to at least repay the expenses that, that donors incur uh, so that there isn't a disincentive to, to donate kidneys. Along the lines of improving people's lives through better designing markets in this very palpable way with regarding uh, you know, kidneys and whatnot, are there other markets that you've noticed, maybe not a lot of people are trying to design them differently, that could benefit a lot from um, having them designed or redesigned? Well, there certainly are. But, but before we talk about that, let me mention that the fact that a market is working badly uh, doesn't always make it a good candidate for redesign because often it's working badly for a reason. You know, there are, there are you know, it, it's not working badly for everyone. It's, uh, you know, there, there might be lots of obstacles to redesigning it. So when you look at American healthcare, you know, think of the, the political turmoil that we're going through in the United States now when we talk about how to get health insurance for people who need it. Um, so, I think it's reasonably clear that, that we're not doing a wonderful job of that for the prosperous country that we are, but we obviously have enormous political disagreements on how to go about it. So, so I, so that, so there's a market, you know, we have a very, it's not really a low hanging fruit for you. In other words, say again, it's not really a low hanging fruit for someone in your line of work. In other words, you'd rather focus on the the things that can be easily. It's, 
it's one of the, the most controversial political issues in the country. So, so it's not at all a low-hanging fruit. Uh, and what we're going to do, you know, I don't know exactly what we'll do, but I think the general outline when we're, we're doing it is we'll say we did clumsy legislative things that whose effect we didn't anticipate, and we wait and see what happens, and then we do other clumsy legislative things. So, no, I don't think that um, my phone is going to ring anytime soon, and, and someone will say to me, can you help us? Uh, you know, here's a blank sheet of paper, uh, write out a healthcare system. Not that I would be able to, to do that. It takes a long time to understand such a complicated thing that we're starting with. Um, Go ahead. Oh, do you think it would work uh, better if the legislatures understood uh, how these markets were designed and how they could better function? Or do you think that uh, that's too hopeful to think that legislatures would, would think this way? Well, well, the, you asked, would it work better if legislators understood more? And I think, yes, it would. I think that a lot of the discussion of markets, including healthcare markets, are uh, are very ill-informed. And it would be better if we had better educated legislators. But of course, we elect our legislators, so maybe we get the government we deserve. And they're not well informed about economies and how markets work. So um, so I also agree that it's pie in the sky to, to wait for that to happen. Um, but in terms of markets that aren't working well, and that may not be ripe for redesign nevertheless, uh, another political hot potato is refugee resettlement. Right? There, there's lots of large-scale human migration going around in the world, and we're not doing a very good job of it. Right? If, if here in the United States we have um, children showing up at our borders uh, seeking asylum, if in Europe they have small boats filled with families coming across the Mediterranean trying to get to Europe, it's pretty clear that those aren't the right ways to handle migration. But of course, migration is also a hot political issue and presidential elections and decisions about whether to stay in the European Union have been won and lost on on emotions about refugee resettlement and immigration. So I don't anticipate that we're going to do a great job anytime soon. But we should try to learn some lessons about what's working badly, because there are many things working badly now in that because it's that that the problem of human migration is not going to go away, uh, even you know long after there's no more civil war in Syria, if the sea levels start to rise, if the sea levels continue to rise, um, lots of people will uh, need to to move in in your lifetime, and we'd better think about what are some good ways to handle that. An interesting parallel is the fact that uh, your work in, in kidney exchanges came out of initial work by your co-noblest uh, uh, Lloyd Shapley on uh, what he said, instead of trading kidneys, his original paper about the trading of houses. And if you think about, you know, un, you know like organs, you know, a, a place to live is something everyone needs. Uh, it's not exactly as one-to-one as, as kidneys are, but is that a good way to look at uh, refugee resettlement and just housing issues as we see here in a housing crisis? Well, housing issues are an important part of refugee resettlement. They, they may be the, I mean, they're a difficult, hard, important part, but they might be the easiest part. So there are some people looking at refugee resettlement housing as a matching market. And when I say that might be the easiest part of refugee resettlement, what I mean is when, by the time you're talking about housing 
you're mostly talking about refugees who have already been granted asylum in your country. So in the United States, in Canada, in England, in Sweden, some number of refugees each year are granted asylum. Now they're now they're here. And now the question is, how should we support them? How should we help them integrate into society? And um, I don't think we have great answers about that. Um, one thing that used to be popular among immigration authorities was the idea that you would spread refugees uh, thinly around the country so that they'd assimilate invisibly. But often refugees like to uh, go to places where they have relatives and you know, who have come in years before or and people speak their language and, and they can buy groceries of the kind that they like. So when you look at non-refugee immigrants in the United States, you see that often Americans are are concentrated in different ethnic communities. There are places where there are lots of Hispanics. There are places where there are lots of Asians. Um, there are places where there are lots of Somali Americans, many of whom did come as refugees. And some of the places where they are aren't obvious. I mean, a lot of that one concentration of Somali Americans is in the state of Maine, Lewiston, Maine. And it's not because Somalis like to cross-country ski when they were in Somalia. It's because some Somalis settled in Maine, and so it became an attractive place to go if you were a new immigrant to the United States from Somalia because they would be friendly, welcoming people there. So we have to think about housing and employment and community all together when we think about settling refugees. So when you talk about repugnance in this sense, do you think that it should be, uh, from a market designer's perspective, taken as a given? Or do you think that if a market designer notices repugnance is just leading to bad outcomes, they should push back against it? Well, I think both of those things are, are possibilities. You know, the thing about kidney uh, payment for kidneys is when you see something that's against the law everywhere in the world, that might give you a clue that it might take a lot of pushing back to change it. There might be easier things to change. Um, but but lots of things have been repugnant and then and then changed. You know, for for centuries in the Middle Ages, um, it was repugnant to charge interest on loans. But we could hardly have the kind of capitalist economy that we have today if we didn't have a market for capital. So you know that that took a long time to change, and it was good to have it change. But but not every not every repugnance is ancient. And it's not that as we get more modern, every repugnance goes away. You know, here in the United States, we used to have markets for slaves. We don't anymore. Uh, most of us think that's a good thing. So, you know, slavery used to not be so repugnant that you couldn't have legally enforceable slavery in the United States. But, but today, it, it's obviously against the law. The, the 13th Amendment says we're not going to do that anymore. So, so repugnance is tricky, right? I mean, markets need social support, and we have to decide what kinds of you know, collectively, we have to decide what kinds of markets we're prepared to support. And then there's a question of how to design them. Incidentally, there are some things we don't support that we can't get rid of. I mean, that, that's what black markets are about. We have laws against selling heroin and, and crack cocaine. But my guess is that we could find places here in California where we could buy those things sufficiently cheaply to indicate that, that we're not really successful in, in limiting the supply. I mean, we, we can't even make them expensive. But, but our prisons are full of, of people you know, convicted of, of drug crimes. So sometimes, it's, sometimes we design a market by the laws we 
make against it. And that's, that's the first step in designing the black market. Um, prostitution is another market that, that, you know, hasn't been, you know, has been repugnant for a long time, but, but we aren't very able to, to completely eliminate it. Um, so, you know, the fact that we don't like things doesn't always mean that we can, can make them go away. And we have to, we should, we should be thinking about whether we like the, if we can't make them go away, we should be thinking about whether we like the illegal black market better than we would the the legal regulated market that we might be able to get in its place. Well, I guess it matters how far repugnance goes. I guess the abolitionists pushed, you know, the fact that slavery is so wrong, you rarely, I, I guess, in a civilized society, see, uh, you know, people have a black market for slaves, uh, fortunately, I guess. Well, we haven't completely eliminated human trafficking. I mean, particularly particularly connected with prostitution, you know, so to, to the extent that there are child prostitutes, uh, you know, the, the, it's possible to think that we still have some slavery going on, but, but it certainly doesn't have the, the blessing of the law. I mean, there was a time when slavery was legal in the United States that you could, uh, you know, pursue slaves and recapture them. Uh, so, so we've certainly come a long way from that. We don't have legal slavery, but, but it's not completely clear that, that uh, we don't have human trafficking that might resemble in some cases uh, slavery. But, but, you know, when you can really reduce something you don't like, then, then by all means, you know, that's a big success, right? I think, I think we, we're a much better society for making slavery illegal, even if we haven't succeeded in, in eliminating every case of human trafficking. Um, we tried having prohibition, you know, in the late 20s, early 30s, right? We tried eliminating alcohol consumption in the United States by making it illegal. And I guess that didn't go very well. It turns out Americans like to drink, and, and we ended up supporting various kinds of organized crime to, to supply that market. And, and so we eventually uh, repealed prohibition. Um, we're seeing something a little similar incrementally these days with marijuana, you know, in the state of Washington, in Colorado, in Oregon, soon in California. I mean, we already have medical marijuana here. Uh, we're going to decriminalize marijuana. On the other hand, the the current attorney general, uh, you know, wants to strengthen the federal laws against marijuana. So this is, a, again, a politically volatile issue that divides Americans. Um, but I think it's going to be very hard to maintain the laws against marijuana as it becomes legal in some states. I, I recently gave a talk at the University of Washington in Seattle, and, um, you know, I walked to the university from, uh, from downtown through a, a sort of... Um, well, to a neighborhood where, where some homeless people seem to be and where once they would have been clutching bottles. Uh, now they, you know, they were smoking marijuana, uh, many of them. Um, but there's also, I presume, you know, bakeries and, you know, nice ways to, to the, the, what used to be called the state of Washington liquor control board is now called the state of Washington liquor and cannabis control board. So su supposing you're a highway patrolman in the state of Idaho, which borders on Washington and in which marijuana is not legal in any form. 10 years ago, if you stopped a car for, for a traffic stop and you notice marijuana in the car, uh, you would, you'd make a drug arrest. And when you got back to the, Highway Patrol barracks, your colleagues would pat you on the back and say that you were a, you know, a good policeman. You'd made a good arrest. 
Now, supposing you arrest someone coming from the state of Washington and they have, um, you know, a box of brownies from a legitimate bakery and they hadn't finished them all and, and they have marijuana in them, uh, your your colleagues are going to be less impressed with the arrest you made. You know, you didn't arrest criminals. You arrested people who hadn't finished their brownies. Um, so my guess is even in Idaho, where where marijuana is illegal, the enforcement of those anti-marijuana laws is going to have to change because it's legal right next door. And we saw, uh, well, so, so so I think that's in transition. So I'm, I'm really interested about this, uh, you know, the challenges and, and possible you know, successes that we could have in better allocating refugees in the light of all these, you know, uh, constraints as repugnance. Where, where do you think we could make improvements in, the, in this system? Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize that that very few countries, especially liberal democracies, are able to completely control our borders, right? Uh, President Trump would like to build a wall, but um, he might not be able to. It turns out that's the real estate issue. Uh, You have to get the land for the wall, things like that. And there are lots of ways to get into the United States. And there are lots of ways to get into Europe, right? I mean, Europe is trying to control its borders in various ways, but people are coming across the Mediterranean Ocean. Um, So... So one thing is to recognize that you might not be able to keep everyone out. That, that's a little bit why we're talking about black markets, right? That, that this is one of those things you could pass a law that says no one can come in, but that doesn't mean you're not going to have undocumented people who, who get in. Then the question is, how should you handle them? That, that's one of our issues in the United States, right? Not, not everyone living in the United States, not everyone living and working in the United States uh, is here legally. But then we have all the questions of how about children born to illegal immigrants, things like that. If we want to have an orderly society, we have to find a way to take care of each other in a way that doesn't make children criminals, things like that. So so I think that's part of what we have to look at. What what do we want? We have to figure out that's a political question. What can we get? That's that's partly a, a question of feasibility. Uh, and what do we want to do about it, given that, for instance, there are going to be children born to illegal immigrants in the United States or children who came here as three-year-olds and are now getting ready to graduate from college. You know, what should their status be? How should we write our laws so as to make the things we want happen and to make the best of the things we can't prevent from happening? It's certainly a harder, I guess, a problem when you have you know so many people not even knowing what they want than what they do. When you're doing designing something like a system for sending public school students to the to the right schools they want, it's at least everyone knows what they want. Uh, yep. Well, not everyone knows what they want. I mean, different people want their kids in different schools, and not everyone can get the schools they want. But you're quite right. We're you know questions where as a country we're politically divided are going to need political solutions. And, but, but, but even there, you know, the, the question of, so, so we don't, you know, let, let's take crack cocaine and let's suppose that everyone agrees that crack cocaine, you know, no one should ever take crack cocaine. It's just bad for you. It's, there's never a good reason to take it. Um, but it turns out we can't easily prevent it. We can't completely prevent it. So then the question is, how should we deal with people who become addicted to it? Are they criminals or are they... Uh, do they have an illness? Uh, what should we do about people who sell it? Are they like murderers who should be sent to jail forever? Are they, you know, like people who jaywalk that that we should try to interfere with their business, but 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 not.
not fill our jails with them? These are all questions that that what the right answer is depends partly on what we want. What we want is that no one should ever take crack cocaine, but also depends on partly what we can get. It turns out, although we've been trying really hard, we can't get to the point where no one takes crack cocaine. So, so, so maybe we should think more about what what we should do. So, so to take lessons from something, I guess a, a particular concern to this area with the housing crisis is housing. Housing is unaffordable, uh, unaffordable, and you have you know homelessness rising and displacement rising. What do we want? We want a home for everybody, but it can be hard to get it. Uh, as a taking lessons from market design, how should we look at a at a a problem like this? Well, of course, a lot of land use has to do with zoning regulations. We could allow higher density construction in the Bay Area. Uh, that would make housing cheaper. It would allow more housing to be built. But on the other hand, not everyone would be interested in that. That, that would reduce the, you know, the the assets that that people have in their homes. Right? It would make if if we made land and housing less expensive, people who already have expensive homes might not might not be thrilled with that. It might make the Bay Area more crowded. Um, you know, maybe what we should be doing instead of, or in addition, whatever, to, to building a north-south railway in California, maybe we should build an east-west one. Maybe there should be a train that could take you from the East Bay to, to the Stanford campus that would expand the, the, you know, the set of places where people could live and still work in Silicon Valley, for instance, if you didn't have to have so much congestion over the Bay Bridges. Uh, so, so there are lots of land use things to think about none of them are very easy yeah and i i i guess you talk about the repugnance and uh i guess one i call it a silly thought but you know we have basically declared uh in california a lot of things repugnant like selling kidneys when you sell your house in california a lot of people will because of prop 13 change their uh you know change the value of how much they pay taxes so in a lot of ways i wonder if like a, a housing trade would be uh, would fit within these housing uh you know, repugnance constraints, you like kidneys. Well, there are trades of properties because of the tax law. I mean, they're, given, you know, given the depreciation laws and the tax law, there actually are transactions that, that people who buy property depreciate it and then trade it for another property, which they can then depreciate. So there, there are some anomalies in the tax law that that probably look more like tax avoidance than like, um, productive trades. But but yes, there are trades that are motivated primarily by tax considerations. When you were giving a talk at Google, um, at one point, uh, the electromagnetic spectrum came up and you talked about how, if I understand correctly, uh, what was given to television companies was redefined such that they didn't own a particular frequency but a a a portion uh they they owned some portion uh, so they had some right to to the spectrum but that that could be sort of reordered and compactified when i think of this and we're talking about land use now there's some interesting connections there i i think uh they're not totally the same thing but um do you see them being uh similar at all in terms of uh market design well, there are certainly some similarities. Incidentally, the big expert on spectrum auctions is Paul Milgram, who's my colleague here at Stanford, a professor of economics. So you might want to talk to him about all that. He just 
designed the, the recently completed incentive auction that that consolidated uh, some of the unused uh, spectrum that television stations were willing to sell and consolidated the remaining ones so that the, the freed up spectrum could be sold for things like broadband and, and things like that. So, um, so of course, when you talk about land use, um, you know, sometimes people need big swaths of property to build something. And so you see, you know, in Menlo Park, you see unused land that's been accumulated and, and eventually will be licensed for some use. Uh, you know, if you wanted to buy a lot of land in order to build a big corporate campus, you you might want to, for instance, be well. You, you want to consolidate it. You don't want you don't want a couple of houses in the middle of your campus. Um, so that's a little bit like the problem faced with spectrum. You're going to buy up a lot of spectrum from television stations. Not all will sell. You don't want the the ones who don't sell to be in the middle of. Uh, of the bandwidth that you can allocate. And, and so you're quite right that the Federal Communications Commission defined the property right that you had as a TV station, not to be that you owned particular frequencies to broadcast on, but that you owned a certain bandwidth to broadcast on, and they can move you and say, now you broadcast on, on these frequencies. Um, so there are similar issues. But of course, bandwidth is much more homogeneous than, than land is, right? I, uh, Unless I've heard that location is important say. for land. So, uh, so I don't think the same solutions could be applied for for assembling big proper, big uh, parcels of land. Um, but but you should really talk to Paul Milgram about that. So it sounds yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, you, when you start you know looking at these ways to describe what you see around you in thick and thin markets, you start seeing it all around you. You talk about you know unraveled markets where things happen too early. You can see the same thing with you know water rights in California, uh, you know bandwidth rights, and you know the kind of thing that what is considered a a property right can be a constraint on uh, you know how how efficiently it can be allocated if people kind of have a first come first serve basis on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So property rights are important. They're part of market design, just, you know, deciding what it is you can own, what can you buy and sell. And, and so that's you know, one of the fascinating things about kidneys, right? You own your kidney free and clear enough so that you could give it to me if you love me and, and if I needed a kidney, but not you don't own your kidney enough so that you could sell it to me. That would make you and me a felon. Uh, so so our ideas about property rights, you know, your kidneys are clearly yours. No one can take your kidney from you. You can give it away, but you can't sell it. That's a very unusual combination of property rights. It's, it's, we own ourselves, but we can't sell ourselves into slavery. So there's, it's, it's, right. it's, very, it's very interesting. So, yeah. You, I, you can't sell yourselves into slavery, but you could enlist in the army, for instance, and give up some <laughs> of your autonomy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we're wrapping up here. We've been talking for uh, most of an hour. But, yeah, uh, the the book uh, is uh, Who Gets What and Why. Uh, we've been talking to Professor Alvin Roth here at Stanford, uh, Nobel Prize winner in uh, 2012. And, yeah, I mean, markets are all around us, and it, it, it really can change your way of looking at it when you have this, you know, the ideas of how markets can be designed all around you. So Absolutely. One of the, one of the things I hoped to do with the book was to a little bit, write a field guide to markets and you know, to open people's eyes to the to the many different kinds of markets that they experience all the time. And I think a lot of people have the notion that either markets are good or markets are bad. And I, I like, you know, the general notion I get from you is like, 
well, some are working really well and some aren't and some are low hanging fruit that we can adjust and immediately save people's lives with you know the the, the kidney donor um you know program and uh so so don't just broad stroke these things uh this is a interesting subject that can you know, it can really help people uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right it's it's our problem to solve, and I guess it's our challenge to to solve. So yeah, thank you so much for your time. It's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Take care. Uh, this has been the Harry George program here on KCSU Stanford. You can find previous episodes and learn more about EarthSharing.org at the website seethecat.org.